Amen. You may be seated, and please open up your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. Uh, today is our second sermon in this series through uh, the book of Ruth. We'll be in this book uh, all the way up until um, Christmas Eve. And uh, while you're turning to Ruth 1, if you weren't here last week for the opening five verses of this little book, I'm going to try to briefly orient you to it without re-preaching last Sunday's sermon. Um, Ruth is a small Old Testament book. You can find it just to the right of the book of Judges, just to the left of uh, 1st and 2nd Samuel. And so, you know, Ruth coming right after the book of Judges, uh, looking at uh, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, we're actually told in the, that, that opening verse of this book that, that Ruth, the, Ruth actually happened during the days of the Judges. And if, if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, a, a very quick summary is uh, the book of Judges is not, let's say, the spiritual high point of uh, Israel's history. That the book of Judges, really, those, those 21 chapters tell about a um, repeated cycle or even repeated downward spiral over and over and over again of how God's people rebel against him and his word. God then disciplines them punishes them, chastens them, often by sending an invading army. The people then are, are brought to repentance. They cry out for help. God then responds. He provides a deliverer and, uh, and gives them the victory. And then guess what? The people rebel against God and his word. God then sends an invading army. The people are brought to uh, repentance and they cry out for help. God sends a deliverer, and then the cycle continues over and over and over again. In fact, the, the final verse in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 21, verse 25, gives a, a summary of how bad things were during that time. In those days, the time of the Judges, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it's, it's never been a good idea. Things have never been good or improved whenever people did what was right in their own eyes. That wasn't the case 3,000 years ago. It's not the case today whenever you or I do what is right in our own eyes. And what we see in the opening verses of Ruth is that because of the widespread sin and rebellion against God and his word during the days of the judges, that there was a famine in the promised land. And that famine in the promised land was intended by God to be a wake-up call for his people, to, to call his people as individuals, to, to search their own hearts and lives for where they needed to repent and to turn back to God in faithfulness, as well as to, to call them corporately, to, to join together and urge one another in, uh, to join in repentance and turning back to God in faithfulness. However, the story of Ruth opens with a man named Elimelech deciding that he's going to attempt to flee the famine and move his wife and his two sons from the promised land, from Bethlehem in Judah, to pagan Moab. And we spent a lot of time on this last week, so I'm not going to say a whole lot more than this. Elimelech should not have moved his family out of the promised land. He should not have turned his back on his inheritance from the Lord. He should not have cut himself and his wife and his sons away, from, cut them off from the people of God, the word of God, the, the worship of God. But that's what Elimelech did. And then he died. And his wife, Naomi, was left a widow. But, then she, but she had two sons. And the two sons married Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth, who we're going to get to know a lot more in our text today. But then 
tragedy befalls his family again, and Naomi's two sons, the husbands of Orpah and Ruth, they die. And so our text last week, which was just the first five verses of Ruth 1, ends with things going from bad to worse, and we're left with these three women, these three widows, mother-in-law, Naomi, and the two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. They're left there alone. And so we're left wondering, okay, what, what will they do? You know, what can they do? I mean, they need to do something, right? I mean, the world was a very, very rough place 3,000 years ago for widows. And so what are they going to do? What we're going to see in our text today is that Naomi decides to return home to Bethlehem in Judah. Now, before I read the passage to you, which is going to be from verse 6 to verse 22, okay, the whole end of the chapter, I want to highlight that word, return. See, as I read the passage, I want you to listen for the word return or for the phrase um, turn back or go back, because the verb form of return occurs 12 times in these 17 verses. See, it's that, that word is meant to, to, to stand out to us. It's a key theme here in this the second or the end of Ruth chapter 1. And that Hebrew verb that's translated return or turn back, it is commonly used in Hebrew to describe a person uh, changing their literal direction or, or physically returning to a place, which is what uh, Naomi's going to do. She's going to return to Bethlehem. But it's also often used throughout the Old Testament to indicate spiritual renewal, to indicate a, a turning around spiritually, repentance. You're turning away from sin and rebellion against God and his word, turning back to God and to pursue faithfulness. And I emphasize that because our passage today is most certainly about Naomi doing both of these things. She is going to physically return home to Bethlehem, but Naomi and Ruth are go both going to experience spiritual renewal and a returning to God as well. Okay, so listen for that throughout the text. We hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. 
But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love and for our good. And so we're going to walk through this story together, and then I'm going to seek to make a few applications to our lives at the very end. And so let's look first at verse 6. Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So the passage begins, three women together, mother-in-law Naomi, daughters-in-law Orpah and Ruth. And there's also the first occurrence of the word return in verse 6. Right? I told you it was going to show up a lot. Did you notice it showing up a lot? Okay, do you see it here in verse 6? Right, Return and turn back. They're going to appear over and over and over again. Before we move past verse 6, I want you to think about why does Naomi decide that it's finally time to return back to Bethlehem. Think about that. I mean, she didn't decide it was time to return when her husband died. Now, 10 years later, after her two sons have died, she decides it's time to go back. So why? Well, she had received word that the famine was over, but look again at verse 6. She had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. See, the point I'm trying to make is, verse 6 does not simply say that Naomi heard the famine was over. It says that the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the Lord had visited his people and he had given them food. Now that's significant. Okay, and why? Well, remember, the famine was in the land because of the Lord. Right, it was an expression of his divine discipline for his people. Right, the famine was designed to, to, to call his people to, to individual and corporate repentance. And now the famine was over. And the famine was over because the Lord, Yahweh, had visited his people and he had given them food. Which, by the way, is one of the things that we learned this past summer. We were looking at the Psalms. In particular, Psalm 104 says, These all look to you. To give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. See, all that we have comes from the hand of the Lord. And here in Ruth, you know, God had taken away uh, bread from Bethlehem, which was the house of bread. And now God had once again provided bread for the house of bread, for Bethlehem. And before we look more closely at the three women in the story... 
don't miss, okay, that sometimes God brings discipline and suffering and adversity and trials into the lives of his people, into our lives, into your life, into my life, into our lives, to, to wake us up to the damage and the destruction of our sin and to call us to return back to God in repentance. Now, I know, I know whenever I begin to talk about suffering, that suffering is a big, painful, complicated topic. And so please, you know, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that every single time we suffer, every time we face adversity, every time we go through trials, that it's always because of our sin and that it's always because God is disciplining us. That's not what I'm saying because that's not what the Bible teaches. But the Bible does teach here in Ruth and in many other places that God sometimes brings discipline and adversity and trials and suffering into the lives of his people, even into our lives, again, to call us to repentance. The point being that when suffering and adversity is part of God's loving, fatherly discipline in our lives, like what we see in Ruth 1, we, shouldn't, we should not miss that it's, it's purposeful. It's not arbitrary, and it's only ever temporary. You see, God sends the famine, but then God does provide food for his people, that God doesn't abandon his people. And I say that to emphasize to you, friends, that, dear Christian, God will never, ever abandon you. I know it often feels like you're left all alone. It feels like perhaps you have been abandoned, but God never, ever will. Listen to how uh, John Newton, the pastor and author of Amazing Grace put it, like sheep, we are weak, destitute, defenseless, prone to wander, unable to return, and always surrounded by wolves. But all is made up in the fullness, ability, wisdom, compassion, care, and faithfulness of our great shepherd. He guides, protects, feeds, heals, and restores, and will be our guide and our God even until death. Then he will meet us, he will receive us, and he will present us unto himself, and we shall be near to him and be like him and be with him forever. So friends, never ever forget this, and in the midst of your various kinds of sufferings and trials and adversity. Now look at verse 7. So she, Naomi, set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, in Ruth chapter 1, Naomi is a very complex character, okay, difficult to understand in many ways. And, and so I think one of the ways that's helpful uh, to, to think about and understand Naomi is that I, I liken her to the younger son in Luke 15, in the Luke 15 parable of the prodigal son, that she's a lot like that, that just like that younger son Sort of, he's forced to come back home. He's forced to return home when he's got no other options. I think in many ways, that's Naomi. You know, she, she is returning home, and she's, she's walking by faith, and we'll see that. But, but she's struggling as she goes. And she's returning because she has nowhere else to go. And I mentioned that she's a complex character because some pastors, some scholars want to view Naomi as you know, purely, you know, she's, she's backslidden, she's being unfaithful. And then others want to view her as, you know, the, the, the portrait of faithfulness. And I, I think that Naomi is, is, is a mixture of both. Much like 
you are, much like I am. So Naomi, she's been through a lot. Verse 7 seems to point to that the truth that Naomi never fully turned her back on the Lord. I mean, she did follow her husband away from her home, away from God's covenant people, into the pagan land of Moab. Her husband dies. Her two sons, they die. Now she hears about God's faithfulness to his people, to her people back home. And so she decides to walk by faith, to return home, back to the Lord, back to his people, without any guarantee of what awaits her back in Bethlehem. And so don't miss that. She is walking by faith. There's no assurance of financial security. She's no, she, she has no promise that there's going to be provision for her at all. And this was a, a significant trip. You know, 70 to 100 miles. It would take her at least a week. And she's got, she has her two daughter-in-laws with her. And before we move on from verse 7, you know, notice the, the sweet relationship that Naomi and her two daughter-in-law share. And, 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 and I want to point that out to you, you know, just ahead of Thanksgiving. And just so you know, you know it is possible. And, and I hope that you'll, you'll see this and you'll be encouraged by it. You know, Orpah and Ruth are obviously, they're very dutiful. They're honoring to Naomi as they begin this journey for them away from their home to go to a land where they would be uh, unwelcome outsiders. In fact, we're going to see that, that, that Ruth is not readily welcome into Bethlehem. Okay, but, but look, look at verses 8 and 9. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Now, some Christians are perplexed by Naomi urging these daughters-in-laws to, to go back to their hometowns, to stay in pagan Moab, as opposed to leaving the pagan land and join her among God's people. But, but I think that what Naomi's doing at some level is being quite selfless, because it would be better for her to have them with her. And also, she's, she wants Orpah and Ruth to, to count the cost before they fully decide to, to join her on this you know, not simple journey to Bethlehem. I mean, make no mistake, right? Naomi, she's better off with the company, but she's honest with them, right? She herself, she's, she's walking by faith as she makes this journey back home, and she's going back as a destitute widow, and she wants these two younger widows to, to count the cost for themselves, right? Naomi, she's got no guarantees to offer them, and she has no sons to offer them. She has no security to offer them. And yet again, we see the sweetness in the relationship among these three women. You see it in verses 9 and 10. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. So Orpah and Ruth, they're loyal, they're devoted to Naomi. And I have to assume that that says something about the way that Naomi lived among them, has to say something about her character and her life, even while living for that decade in Moab. But then look at verses 11 to 13. But Naomi, she pushes back again. She says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, 
For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, these verses are very important for the rest of the book of Ruth. Because when Ruth is talking about emphasizing, I don't have any sons for you to marry. And I'm so old that even if I, and I don't have a husband myself, but if I were to even have a husband right now and bear sons even today, you, you know, they're too, they would be too young. You know, and you have to wait too long before you could marry them. And, and, and why this is significant is because what Ruth is referring to are the, the laws concerning leveret marriages, which you can read about in Deuteronomy chapter 25, I think it's verses 5 and 6, okay? But let me quickly explain the, the concept of a leveret marriage. The term leveret comes from the Latin word lever, which means husband's brother, okay, husband's brother. So Deuteronomy 25 says that when a husband dies and leaves a widow without any sons, then the man's brother, the Levir, is to marry her and have sons to be heirs in the dead brother's name to preserve the family's inheritance in the promised land. Okay, so I know it sounds like a strange custom to us today, and, and you shouldn't do it, okay? You know, but 3,000 years ago, it was the way for a widow to be cared for and the inheritance in the promised land to be preserved. So again, it's going to become important later in the book of Ruth, but for today, Naomi says, I don't have any sons to marry you. I'm too old to have more sons to marry you. You both be better off leaving me to go find your own new husbands among your people. But then we read in verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. I mean, these, these women love each other. There's so much weeping and hugging and kissing. And Orpah, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And we see that you know, they, they both, Orpah and Ruth, they love Naomi, but they make two very different decisions here. Two different choices. Right? First, there's Orpah, and this is the last we read of her. If she chooses to go back home and remain among the pagans of Moab. Your theologian Ian Duguid says, Orpah looked her situation in life clearly in the face and made the necessary decisions by using exactly the same logic that Naomi had followed earlier. The fields of Moab looked far greener than the land of Israel. With that simple, sensible choice, she marched off out of the pages of the Bible. She went back to her people, back to her gods, yet though she certainly didn't see it that way, there was nonetheless a cost to her logical choice. The world's wise choice to avoid emptiness leads in the end to a different kind of oblivion. And so perhaps you can relate to Orpah today. You know, perhaps you've been coming to church for, for some time. Maybe it's because your mom and dad make you come to church. Maybe it's because you've got some good friends who are here at church. But if you're honest, you can relate to Orpah because, you know what, you've never trusted Christ yourself because you're looking at the decision to follow Christ and you're looking at what you think will be the cost of following Christ. What it would cost you through the world's lens, as that quote said, through the world's wise choice, and all you can see is what Christ, what you will have to give up to follow Christ, and by your calculations, you just don't think it's worth it. I'll tell you, friends, if you choose to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, then he will call you to give some things up. 
He will call you to give up some sinful habits. He will call you to give up some unhelpful and unhealthy relationships. But what Christ gives you in return so far outweighs, honestly, the very, very little that you will have to let go of. Now, the challenge for us is that out in the world, all of the price tags are switched. Right, The things that, that, that we shouldn't value, the world tells us these are the things that you can't live without. And the things that we actually can't live and flourish without are the things that the world says, yeah, don't worry about that. You always have time for that. Don't let that get in the way of, of this other thing. You see, friends, whatever it is you think is worth clinging to instead of receiving and resting in Christ, it will, probably already has, but it certainly will one day fail you, let you down in a very big and painful way. Right? Sin always does that. It never ever delivers on the promises. It never lives up to those promises. It always, it's never, it's never a good deal. It's always way more costly than we expect it to pay. But here's my point. When it does... When whatever it is that you're holding on to so tightly, whenever it does eventually fail you, whenever it crumbles in your very hand, and it will, know, as we sing often in this church, Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, love, and power. And so Orpah, she weeps, she hugs, she kisses, and she leaves Naomi, but not Ruth. And so look again at verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, that, that word that's translated clung, it's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, to describe what happens whenever a husband and wife get married. Right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what verse 14 is saying is that Ruth makes this pledge to Naomi. Listen, I'm, I'm glued to you. And you're never, ever, ever getting rid of me. And so we look at verse 15. Naomi pushes back. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So Naomi pushes back. No, you don't understand. You don't want to go with me. Go, go back, go back home. And what we see next is Ruth's response. And these are some of the most famous words in, in the whole Bible. We read verses 16 and 17, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go I will go, and where you lodge I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more, so, more also if anything but death parts me from you. You see, see one of the great covenantal statements that echoes throughout the whole Bible. Old Testament, the New Testament, is God's promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. See, Ruth's profession of faith wonderfully, beautifully incorporates that statement into verse 16 whenever she says, you shall be my, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. You know, Pastor Sinclair Ferguson says, when God made his covenant with his people, he said, I will be your God and you shall be my people. Those are the words with which God committed himself to saving them. What Ruth is saying in response to Naomi then is, 
This God who made his covenant with Abraham, who brought his people out of Egypt in the Exodus, who has promised to provide us with grace and salvation, Naomi, this is my God. That's why I am saying your people shall be my people and your God my God. Or as my friend David Strain puts it, this God I take as my God. His people I take as my people. I cannot leave you, Naomi, because I cannot leave the God I love. I cling to you, Naomi, because I cling to him. See, th- th- these are wonderfully beautiful words flowing out of Ruth's mouth, right? Right? We love these words. You know, we, we, we say them in our weddings. You know, we, we print them out and we, and we frame them and hang them on our walls, right? We love these words. Beautiful words, wonderful words, incredible words, incredible profession, declaration of, of love for God and his people. But, do you look, but notice Naomi's response. Verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. See, Naomi doesn't say anything. There's just silence. She can't bring herself to say anything. She doesn't thank Ruth for coming with her. She doesn't rejoice over this remarkable and clear profession of faith. She, she said no more. Okay, well, why, why was Naomi silent? Now, remember, I said earlier, Naomi is a complex character here in Ruth chapter 1. There's so much going on in her heart and her mind and her life, her, her relationship with God. She's been through so much. She's really wrestling and struggling in a big way. She's walking by faith, but struggling by faith. And in the moment of Ruth's profession, in the moment of Ruth's declaration of faith and commitment, Naomi is too eaten up with bitterness about her own pain and suffering and loss to say anything. You may say, well, Richard, how do you know that's the case? Well, I know because of what the rest of the chapter says. Okay, so we're going to get there. Look at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. So the whole town worked up into a frenzy because of them. Right? Why is the town, why is a small town worked up into a frenzy? If you've ever lived in a small town, you know why. Because there's something out of the ordinary. Right? That makes everybody kind of go crazy and they start talking. And everybody wants to know, why are these two women here? Why are they here? Why are they alone? Why are there not any men with them? What's their story? There must be a story because one's old and one's young. You know, what's their story? There must be a story because one's an Israelite, one's a, a Moabitess. And so why are they here? And then we read in verse, at the end of verse 19, and the women said, is this Naomi? So some of the women, they recognized Naomi. And now something just to make note of today, but file away for weeks to come. Again, they completely ignore Ruth. They don't ask, okay, Naomi, is that you? And, and who is your friend? Naomi, is that you? And who is this with you? They, they ignore her. They know she's a Moabite. In fact, they'll refer to her. She'll be referred to as Ruth the Moabite throughout the book of Ruth. But she's ignored. Is this Naomi? And then listen to what Naomi says in verses 20 and 21. 
Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi tells us a whole lot about what has been and is going on in her heart and her mind and her relationship with God in these verses. See, she says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. See, Naomi's name in Hebrew means sweet, pleasant, delightful. What she says in verse 20 is, no, 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 no. I don't feel sweet, pleasant, delightful today. Don't call me that. That's not how I feel now. Instead, she says, call me Mara, which means bitter. And the reason why she's bitter is, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And this is the second time that she's spoken about this bitterness because of God and and towards God. Did you catch it earlier? In, In Ruth 1, verse 13, we read, Know my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. See, Naomi's telling us over and over again about this bitterness that's eating her alive in her heart and her mind. And so look back to Ruth 1.20. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. That Mara, bitter, that's the right name for me. I'm bitter, call me that. I don't know if you know this, though, but the name Mara, with an H at the end, is actually the name of a place that has a history associated with God's people. Do you know that? So think about the, the Exodus story. So in Exodus 14, God parts the Red Sea. People of God walk through on dry land. Pharaoh's army comes. The waters crash down. Pharaoh's army is defeated. The people are, they're set free. They're liberated from Egypt. Right? Everybody is excited. Everybody's happy. God had heard our cries, heard our prayers. He sent the plagues. He provided a deliverer in Moses that we, we have been set free. And, then three, and, and it lasted for about three days. And three days later, we read in Exodus 15, verses 23 and 24, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? You see, Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me sweet, pleasant, delightful. That's not how I feel. You call me Mar, you call me bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And again, Ian Duguid says, like her ancestors, Naomi's heart, she's talking about her ancestors in Exodus, in Exodus 15. Naomi's heart was angry with God for the way her life was turning out. She was experiencing the pain of life in the desert and felt that the judgments that had befallen her were all God's fault. The Lord had testified against her in verse 21. She says this, that is, he had called her to account at the bar of his courtroom. In response, her heart had grown hard and bitter toward him both recognizing and at the same time resenting his power in her life. Right? And yet, Naomi, like the prodigal son, had returned home. Right? Had nowhere else to go, forced to come back. And what we see is that Naomi, she was struggling in her heart the whole way. Right? She refers to God as the Almighty. Right? She knows that her theology is orthodox there as it, as it pertains to God's sovereignty she knows that he's sovereign that god is in control of all things 
She knows that she had been unfaithful in some things, and she knows that God, the sovereign one, the almighty one, had brought his hand against her. He had disciplined her in, in love, but it was still hard. And I think that we are to see her confession in Ruth 1, verses 20 and 21, as the words of a woman struggling to face difficult things, impossibly difficult things in life and yet in faith, struggling forward as this returning prodigal. And then we see in the last verse of the chapter, verse 22, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And that brings us to the end of Ruth 1. Okay, so what are we to learn from it? Three things real quick. First, we all at one time were Orpahs and Ruths. We are to not miss that. See, you know, Orpah and Ruth, they were born Moabites, outside the covenant promises of God, outside of God's saving grace, grace and yet Ruth, the Moabite outsider, she becomes an insider, that she's saved by God's grace. You see, and even if you were born a covenant child and had that blessing, being born to believing parents, you know, born into a, a faithful Bible-believing church, born into a, into a life where, where God's word and God's worship and God's promises were all around you, that you and me, all of us were still born into this world outside of God's saving grace. Still born into this world, dead in our trespasses and sins. Still completely, utterly in need of God's grace. Still needed to be born again. Needed new hearts. Needed to be raised to newness of life. And dear Christian, praise God that, that he did all of that, that he saved us by his grace. Praise God that, that not one of us in this room who are Christians, not one of us were too far gone. Right, we see in this chapter, Ruth was not too far gone. And I would dare say there's no one in this room who's too far gone either. That there is room for you in God's amazing grace if you will come. And so the invitation is to come. That whatever you've been clinging to, whatever you've been holding on to and saying, listen, I can't let go, I can't come because I can't let go of this. I know that I will be called to give it up, to let it go. Listen, friends, you are not too far gone. And there will be a time when that thing you're clinging to, it crumbles into, in your very grip, and it fails you. And when it does, know that there is grace for you. You turn to Christ. He has lived, he's died, he's rose from the grave to save sinners like you and like me. And so receive and rest upon his finished work on your behalf. The second thing, especially as we enter into this Thanksgiving week, don't let bitterness towards God eat you up. See, we see Naomi throughout this chapter eating up with bitterness towards God, right? I mean, her theology as, as it regards God's sovereignty is, is on point, is correct, but she's misinterpreting and missing God's goodness and grace and, and love towards her, right? I, I mean, I can't possibly know all that you've been through or all that you're currently going through, but I do know this. Dear Christian, your God loves you, and he's committed to you. He's committed to, to drawing you nearer and nearer to himself. 
And he wants to do that. Even, even through the adversity and the hard things. And sometimes in God's love and grace and in his severe mercy, he takes away some of those things that, that, that have been you know, pulling us away from him. Sometimes he does that. You know, Puritan Thomas Watson says, In prosperity the heart is apt to be divided. The heart cleaves partly to God and partly to the world. God draws and the world draws. Now God takes away the world that the heart may cleave more to him in sincerity. When God sets our worldly comforts on fire, then we run to him and make our peace with him. And so friends, in your hurt and your agony over even the impossibly hard things in life, you know, just don't sit and stew in your bitterness towards God. Don't just let it fester. It will eat you up. So run to God. Be honest with him in prayer. Run to his word. Read and reread and repeat his promises to yourself over and over and over again. You'll be honest with and ask, you know, dear and faithful uh, brothers and sisters in Christ to, to pray for you and to pray with you. Right? It was good that Naomi had her theology straight about God's sovereignty, but we need to have our theology straight about God's goodness. You know, one of my favorite shorter catechism questions is question four. It asks, what is God? Because God's the Spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. And those three words, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, apply to everything that comes next. He's infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, in his holiness. And Naomi believed all of that, but she struggled with believing that God was infinite, eternal, unchangeable, also in his goodness. See, it, it, it must have been hard felt maybe even impossibly hard at times, but it was good and right for Naomi to return home and to return to her God, her good God who, who loved her dearly. The last thing is, don't miss the, the blessing of the beginning of the harvest. And so look at the end of verse 22. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And so we're going to pick up, you know, in chapter 2 next week. But the barley harvest was the first harvest of the season. And then three weeks later, there was the wheat harvest. And so do you understand what that means? That Naomi and Ruth show up in Bethlehem during a time of abundance. A time of abundance. And what they're going to find is they're going to find plenty of work to do in the fields. Which, guess what? Is going to lead to them meeting someone named Boaz. You see, everything has seemed impossibly hard. And yet God's timing for them was perfect. See, dear Christian, I can't know, I don't know all that you've been through, all that you're going through, but God's timing for you and for me is perfect too. He really is in control. He really, really does love us. And I hope that we ha will have some of these things fresh in our minds and hearts today as we enter this next week so that we all can see we, we really do. We really do, no matter who we are, no matter what we're going through, we have so very, very much to be thankful for. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truths that we see in chapter 1, even the complexities that we see going on in Naomi's heart, her relationship with you, that she knows of your sovereignty and she knows of her, of her sin and and she struggles and wrestles with bitterness and 
and believing your love for her and your goodness towards her. Lord, please, help us not to miss the, even the, the glimmer of hope, the, the blessing of the beginning of the barley harvest there at the end of verse 22. Lord, impress upon our minds and hearts today, this next week, and every day the many blessings that, that we have that come from your hand. Lord, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.